You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Charles II, the King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, has been in the background of our story for virtually the entire run of the show. He is the reason Port Royal Jamaica is called Port Royal. He's the namesake of Port Royal's famous fortress, Fort Charles, and Charleston, South Carolina, is named after the king. His shadow looms large over the story of the Buccaneers in the Buccaneering Age, but I would argue that the consequences of his rule loom even larger over the story of the Golden Age of Piracy. So who was Charles II? Today we're going to look at his reign. We're going to look at his virtues as well as his many faults and foibles. This is episode 116, The Merry Monarch. The story of Charles II begins during the Cromwellian regime. Cromwell and England under the Commonwealth were Puritan. Drinking, reading, and sex were all basically illegal under the Commonwealth. Which leads me to wonder, what did people do with their time? The theater? Illegal. Gambling? Illegal. Christmas? Illegal. Sounds like a nightmare. However, when Charles was restored to the throne, everything appeared to change. He reinstated Christmas, which made everyone happy. He reinstated the theater and even took steps to make it far better. Mainly, he legalized women acting in the theater, which we can all agree made for better productions. Drinking? Oh, you betcha. The ale flowed freely in Charles's England, as did wine from France. Coffee became a staple of English life and... Later on, tea was introduced via Charles' wife. And the sex? Oh yes. Charles II, and England under him, was very sex-positive, respectively speaking. The austere black dresses and headscarves women wore in Puritan England were replaced with free-flowing locks and plunging necklines and a scandalous amount of ankle. And don't worry, ladies, you don't get left behind here either. The black robes and tunics favored by Puritan men were replaced with fine linen shirts and very tight breeches. Think David Bowie in Labyrinth tight. And we shouldn't discriminate here. I mean, it was still the 1660s. You were expected to marry and have a bunch of kids. 
but for the well-to-do at least, no one batted an eye if a man sneaked off after a play to meet with his boyfriend, or if a married woman had a very close personal friend. But that wasn't for Charles II. No, he loved the ladies. Peter Ackroyd, in his book Rebellion, would write, quote, The king was known to be an insatiable and compulsive philanderer, and Admiral Pepys calculated that he had seventeen mistresses even before the Restoration. End quote. And then Ackroyd goes on to quote two poems. The first was by John Dryden. Quote, then Israel's monarch, after heaven's own heart, his vigorous warmth did variously impart to wives and slaves, and as wide as his command scattered his maker's image through the land. End quote. In case it's not clear, when he says his maker's image, he's talking about illegitimate children. The Earl of Rochester wrote, quote, Restless he rolls from whore to whore, a merry monarch, scandalous and poor. End quote. And the king's finances were actually in pretty dire straits throughout the reigns of all the Stuart kings. Elizabeth had, through the use of privateers primarily, made a good amount of money for the throne, but they didn't have a lot of income coming in under the Stuarts. They were always trying to get more and more money, from Parliament usually, but Charles II, as we know, tried to get a fair amount from Louis Fourteenth. But the king had at least 17 mistresses, which he wasted a lot of his money on, but even those seventeen are only the women who carried enough of the king's favor to be brought to court, the ones whose names we know. That's to say nothing of maids and servants that he may have seduced in his travels. Many of those mistresses, most of them in fact, were already married, some of them to powerful noblemen. The king paraded them around court nonetheless. These women were his favorites for a time. But all the while, their husbands brooded, or, you know, more probably, they were busy with their own mistresses or their boyfriends. But regardless of that, it was still an insult on the part of the king. There are three women in particular that deserve special note in the story of King Charles II. Well, four, or really five, but those last can wait. Perhaps we should begin by focusing on Charles' wife. Lord knows that he never did. Catherine of Braganza was a Portuguese princess. When he was looking for his wife shortly after taking the throne, many of King Charles' advisors urged him to marry a German princess, or maybe to look to Sweden, or even the Netherlands. Just, please, they begged him to choose a proper Protestant queen. But Charles demurred, saying, quote, I hate Germans, or princesses of cold countries, end quote. Charles was not terribly attracted to Catherine of Braganza. At one point he likened her to a bat, However, it probably helped that she came with a dowry of 800,000 pounds sterling, as well as the East Indian colonial territories of Bombay and Tangiers. More on that when we talk about the Dutch and English East India companies. But in the meanwhile, the king did his kingly duty and attempted to conceive a proper heir. However, the queen consort Catherine miscarried three times. She never gave the king an heir. Perhaps, as some contemporary writers suggested, those were symptoms of a broken heart due to the king's many dalliances. This whole affair was called the bedchamber crisis. It all began when the new queen was introduced to a young, beautiful lady-in-waiting. She accepted the young woman initially, but when she learned the woman's name, Lady Castlemaine, she reportedly burst into tears, threw the woman out, and fainted. 
The Lady Castlemaine already had a child by the king, would give him several more, six in total, and she would live just down the hall from the poor queen consort. The Lady Castlemaine was his favorite for the time, but he moved on. About one of the king's mistresses, it would be said that it was difficult to imagine less brain combined with more beauty, and all of his mistresses were lovely, but the king admired wit and intelligence in his women. His queen was dutiful, and greatly loved the king by all reports, and his mistresses were all beautiful, but, well, they were all growing dull. And then two women appeared who could facilitate the king's needs on both fronts with beauty and intelligence. Nell Gwynne was the most famous of King Charles' mistresses. She was raised in a body house, ostensibly just serving ale, but it's more than likely that she was probably pushed into prostitution at a young age. She may have entered the theater when her father sold her to an acting troupe for just that purpose and she actually started her career dressing as a boy in her daily life, only flaunting her charms on stage. If she was one of the few women acting in the London theater, you can see why she was so popular. There's something alluring about Nell Gwynne. Not just her looks, though she did have those in spades, but she had a sharp tongue and a savvy mind, and later on even a philanthropic spirit. The people of England liked Nell Gwynne, I think largely because she was one of them. She was a low-born commoner, made good. It's all very Cinderella. For a time, Nell Gwynne enjoyed the king's favor. She enjoyed fame on the stage and the love of the people. But all of that changed when her rival appeared on the scene. According to gossip at the time, Louis XIV of France found a stunningly beautiful girl in his court. She was witty and intelligent, and, well, Louis XIV was a famous philanderer himself. He probably knew all of her charms already, but he thought that it would be a good idea to send this girl on to his cousin in England. The Lady Louise was striking, and she had a continental refinement that, well, it was the sort of refinement that one could only achieve in the court of the Sun King. That was something that King Louis appreciated, having grown up in the court of the Sun King, and it was something that certainly couldn't be earned at the body house or the theater. Nell Gwynne, naturally, hated the Lady Louise. She called Louise Squintabella, and they competed viciously for the king's affections. Most of that competition occurred behind the scenes. In public, they were seen drinking tea and playing cards and enjoying one another's company, but... I imagine the barbs that were traded between them were legendary. However, Nell Gwynne never had to compete for the love of the people. Louise was highborn, she was foreign, and she appeared to look down on the English people. The people openly derided the Lady Louise. Once, famously, when Nell Gwynne was riding in her carriage back to her home, she was met with similar jeers and boos to the Lady Louise. That wasn't something she was used to. So she stuck out her head and replied, quote, Good people, you are mistaken. I am the Protestant whore. End quote. See, worst of all, the French Lady Louise was Catholic. And at this point, that was a problem in England. I mean, the people could accept a Catholic queen, maybe as the price of royal politics. They could accept it as long as the king preferred the company of decently Protestant English women. Nell Gwynne was a perfect balm for the people. 
If they could have elected a queen, they would have elected Nell Gwynne. But the French Catholic Lady Louise was like lemon juice on a paper cut. Religion had, for over a century now, been a sore topic for the English people, and King Charles was becoming something of a lightning rod, a focal point for that animosity. And he kind of brought that on himself through his politics. Immediately upon his restoration, King Charles II called a parliament. The ministers of that parliament were nearly all young. It was called the Beardless Room, and the vast majority of the parliament were the sons of royalist supporters during the war. Those sons were more than supportive of the king, in large part because they had been restored to their lands and titles. This parliament was dubbed, due to that support and their lineage, the Cavalier Parliament. There were some Presbyterian dissenters in their ranks, but, well, we need to define something here. The Anglican Church, as we discussed last time, was an Episcopalian organization. Pomp, grandeur, and the rule of the bishops were how they ran their church, and they called their church the High Church. But there was another Anglican church in England. I mean, technically it was the same organization, but there was a subset within the Anglican church that practiced a pared-down, simplified version of the faith. They were separate from the Quakers or the Puritans. They were Anglican, but they were called derisively the Low Church. They supported that Presbyterian church organization. Regardless, though, when King Charles II triumphantly took the throne and called a parliament, those divisions were minimal. Everyone praised the king. He was a release from the Puritan dictatorship that had ruled England for so long, and for a time the country loved him. But that didn't last. See, the king was given the job, the unenviable job, of overseeing the High Church and the Low Church and the Scottish Kirk, not to mention all of the Puritans and Quakers. This was a dangerous concoction, and the king wanted to heal those divides. He wanted to unify all of these various faiths under the throne. In 1672, he instituted the Royal Declaration of Indulgence that was intended to extend religious liberty to all his people. Protestant nonconformists... Puritans, Presbyterians, and Quakers, anyone who was Protestant but not dogmatically Anglican, would be allowed to practice their religion. It also extended religious toleration to Catholics living in England. It ended the financial and social policies that were aimed directly against English Catholics. They would be allowed to practice their religion and didn't have to pay an extra tax. And, this is key, they would be allowed to hold office. And on the surface, to me at least, that seems great. It seems like a big step in the right direction toward a true freedom of religion. I mean, look at the Roman emperors. Look at Alexander the Great, even. They all allowed a freedom of religion within their empire as long as the people paid respect to the emperor and paid their taxes. Maybe that's what Charles was going for here. And King Charles, more than most in his nation understood the experience of being a Catholic living in secret. Maybe he wanted to end that for his subjects. But the English people hated the 1672 indulgence. And perhaps they should have. We saw last time what it did to the people of Scotland. It was a nightmare. But more than anything, the people of England saw this indulgence as a harbinger of the looming specter of popery. 
For those of you that have read the Communist Manifesto, you might recognize that language. You know, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of popery. And in a lot of ways, England in the 1670s looked kind of like America during the Red Scare. Everyone in America was terrified of communism, and everyone in England was terrified of popery, both of which were scary foreign ideologies that appeared to stand opposed to everything that their nation stood for. In much the same fashion that communists were blamed for every evil in 1950s America, I mean, for example, did you know that horror comic books were a communist plot to corrupt America's youth? And in much the same fashion that Jews were blamed for every evil in, well, you know, Europe for all of history, in the England of the early reign of King Charles, Catholics took the blame for every evil that occurred. The Great Plague of London, you ask? Just God's wrath for allowing Catholics to live in England. The Great Fire of London was obviously set by Catholic dissenters, and of course neither of those things are true, but they were written down and gossiped about at length. Now, of course, during the Red Scare, there were actually Soviet spies operating in the U.S., but not nearly at the level that Hoover or McCarthy would have had us believe. The Red Scare was blown way out of proportion. But in England, there really was a lot of influence from the Catholic Church, and it reached into the highest halls of power. Whatever the people may have said about FDR and socialism, or about JFK's Catholicism, neither of those were actually working for a foreign leader. But Charles II, you know, he was. During the Third Anglo-Dutch War, he signed the Secret Treaty of Dover, that agreement with Louis XIV. He agreed that Charles would convert to Catholicism, or more accurately, that he would announce his conversion to the English people, and that he would work in conjunction with France to fight the Dutch. And in return, he would receive a lot of money. Now, no one but a very select few knew about that at the time, but everyone suspected. I mean, Charles grew up in the court of Louis, as did his brother James. Their mother was French, and their sister had married into a prominent noble family in France. And Charles just kept taking these apparently pro-Catholic steps. You would have to be either willfully ignorant or secretly supportive of these actions not to question them. But a lot of English people were just that. We shouldn't ignore the power of religious propaganda. The bishops and priests of the High Church would spend hours every week telling the people that King Charles was ordained by God, the divine right of kings, naturally, and they were made rich and powerful for their support. Little by little, though, the king's support began to erode. Everyone started growing just a little bit jaded with the Merry Monarch. Even his most staunch supporters were starting to turn on him. Anthony Ashley Cooper was an MP who served back during the reign of Charles I, moved on to serve under Oliver Cromwell, and finally he was in the cadre of nobles that worked to see Charles II restored to the throne. He supported George Monk and Lord Albemarle, both of whom played roles here and in continental, mainly Jamaican and Virginian politics. And Cooper was also involved in all of those politics, though he had more of an interest in Carolina. For his good service, King Charles made Anthony Ashley Cooper the first Earl of Shaftesbury, which is how we will refer to him from now on, and he was raised from the House of Commons to the House of Lords, where he served faithfully. Do you remember the cabal of Charles II? 
That's something that we talked about a long time ago. They were the privy council to the king, and their name was a derisive play on words. It inferred nefarious motivations, but it was also an acronym for the five lords who sat on the privy council. Lord Clifford, the Earl of Arlington, the Duke of Buckingham, Anthony Ashley, and the Duke of Lauderdale. C-A-B-A-L. The cabal was deeply divided on the 1672 indulgence. Shaftesbury openly protested in front of the cabal and the king. The Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, which was an important office in the royal household, resigned in protest rather than affix the seal to that document. It nearly tore the cabal apart. But in the end, they stayed loyal and continued to serve. They took no open action against the indulgence, but the Cavalier Parliament did. These were the men who had been unbelievably supportive of King Charles at the Restoration, men who had been restored to their own lands and titles by the king, and now, less than a year after passing the indulgence, the Cavalier Parliament forced the king to repeal it. And then they went way in the opposite direction. They passed the Test Act. The full name of the Test Act is an act for preventing dangers which may happen from popish recusants. The test in question wasn't so much a test as an oath that was required by every English citizen taking office anywhere from a sheriff to an MP. The oath read, quote, I, state your name, do declare that I do believe that there is not any transubstantiation in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or in the elements of the bread and wine, or, after the consecration thereof, by any person whatsoever. End quote. I'd like to quote Winston Churchill and his analysis of the effects of the Test Act on the Cabal. Quote, this purge destroyed the Cabal. Clifford, a Catholic, refused to forswear himself. Arlington was dismissed because of his unpopularity. Buckingham had a personal quarrel with the king. Shaftesbury had already voted for the Test Act and was the leader of the opposition. Lauderdale alone remained cynical, cruel, and servile master of Scotland. End quote. And I should be clear, that purge didn't occur when the Test Act was passed initially. That happened in 1678, when the Test Act was strengthened to include not just sheriffs and MPs, but lords and members of the Privy Council and those who had their eyes on becoming king. The cabal was over. But take particular note of one line that Churchill wrote there. Shaftesbury was the leader of the opposition. And you might be wondering, opposition to what exactly? And the answer is simple. The king's brother James, Lord High Admiral and Duke of York. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro. Box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. James was a Catholic. Secretly, ostensibly, but it was about as well-kept a secret as Nell Gwynn. He was also the heir to the English throne. And a lot of people had a problem with this, including Shaftesbury. James was bold and unapologetic in his faith. He took communion in France in a Catholic ceremony that was witnessed by his officers and soldiers. And, even more to the point, James wasn't universally reviled. He was kind of popular, actually, in the right circles at least. See, James was busy winning sea battles in the East Indies, and he was looking good doing it. He was earning honor and respect and, in the eyes of many, legitimacy. That's why, in 1678, Parliament, led by Shaftesbury in this move, strengthened the Test Act. This was aimed directly at James Stewart. James took action. James resigned. He resigned his post as Lord High Admiral, rather than take the oath. This staggered the English nation. James' Catholic wife Maria could be explained away, just as King Charles could be. James taking communion could even be interpreted as a sign of respect if you were willing to stretch credulity to the breaking point. But James was a war hero. However, this was his line in the sand. He took his stand here, and I respect this move. You know, I think it's ridiculous that a Catholic would not be allowed to sit on the English throne today. I mean, I think the existence of a throne today is ridiculous as well, but that's neither here nor there. From a freedom of religion perspective, I see nothing wrong with James announcing his Catholicism and keeping his post. But that's looking at the world with modern lenses. In 1678, things were different. In 1678, the Catholic faith did kind of represent the old world. They actively supported absolute monarchy, a return to feudalism, and the divine right of kings. I don't like any of that stuff. It's a complex situation, and it's one that challenges my preconceived notions and biases, which is something I love about the study of history. And thus far, I've danced around and tried very hard to avoid putting any political labels on these two movements. You know, I've talked about the High Church and the Low Church and Presbyterians and Episcopalians, but what we're really talking about is conservatives and liberals. In revolutionary France, they would have been called the right and left wing. And we should acknowledge that this was well over 300 years ago, Their practical, policy-based platforms are vastly different from anything we might see with those labels today. 
However, philosophically speaking, they were the forebears of the modern conservative and liberal movements. However, in the months following the Test Act and the resignation of the Lord High Admiral James, the two opposing sides began drawing up lines and would receive their own names, which we can use from now on. The side of Episcopalian High Church conservative monarchism were labeled the Tory Party, or the Tories. The burgeoning Tory Party was led by a man named Thomas Osborne, who we'll talk more about later, and the Tories at this point held all of the military power in England. The opposition, on the other hand, headed at the beginning by Shaftesbury, were low-church Presbyterian parliamentarians. They stood for, or were said to stand for, the voice of the people, at least rich, land-owning, white, male people, and you even see the stirrings of early republicanism. They were called the Whig Party. And remember that we need to check our politics at the door here. Those of you who would call yourselves conservative in the modern world, unless you're actually calling for a return to the monarchy, would be much more in line with the liberal Whig Party. Those of you who would call yourselves liberals in the modern world, I would say would be more in line with, say, the Republicans of the Age of Revolutions. And I should acknowledge that I'm discussing most of this from the point of view of a U.S. citizen. People from England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland might view these politics very, very differently. But after these battle lines began to draw up, one of the more odd chapters in English history took place. It's called The Popish Plot. The Popish Plot was a fictitious plan in which five English Catholic lords were implicated in a plot to assassinate King Charles II and put his Catholic brother James on the throne. Now, none of that story is true. I'm not going to delve into it here, but I do want to look at the implications of that supposed plot. Even though it was all a lie, a malicious lie, in fact, intended to demonize the Catholic population and lordship of England, it took quite some time for anyone in England to realize that it was a lie. Everyone in England operated as though it was solid fact. The opposition, the Whig Party, took full advantage of the chaotic climate in England. and It was actually members of the Whig Party, more radical members, who had created this chaos. Shaftesbury, well, he was never implicated in the creation of the Popish plot, but he did take advantage of it. He ordered the five lords that were implicated in the plan arrested. They were, and they were locked away in the Tower of London. The king's secretary and physician, who were also implicated in the plot, were also locked up. There were over a hundred names named in the Popish plot, all of them Catholic and all of them in positions of power, some probably very much did want the openly Catholic James on the throne, but that was already a foregone conclusion. The king didn't have any other heirs, so they had no reason to kill the king. Nevertheless, in the months following the revelation of this popish plot, dozens of notable Catholics were arrested, including priests and lords. Then the Cavalier Parliament met, and a member of the Parliament, Sir Henry Capel, gave an impassioned speech. He said, quote, From popery came the notion of a standing army and arbitrary power. 
Formerly the crown of Spain, and now France supports this root of popery amongst us. But lay popery flat, and there's an end of arbitrary government and power. It is a mere chimera, or notion, without popery. End quote. This popish plot, though it was a fabrication, was the spark that the Whig party needed to push its agenda through. And you know, on a personal level, I tend to see Sir Henry's point here. The Catholic forces of Europe were pushing arbitrary power and standing armies. I don't like any of that, but I do want to recognize that the Whig Party was very likely, at least members of the Whig Party, were very likely privy to the lie, and they went ahead anyway. What follows is called the Exclusion Crisis. In many ways, it's a direct result of the Bedchamber Crisis, There were a lot of crises in the Stuart dynasty, and if Charles Stuart had had a son, this would never have happened. It all began with the downfall of Thomas Osborne, Earl of Danby. Danby had raised himself up to become the top advisor to King Charles II. He wasn't the Prime Minister or the Viceroy or the Chancellor, but his office was essentially the same. And at this time, the two sides, the Tories and the Whigs, were very much drawing up battle lines But their positions weren't exactly set in stone. Danby held positions on both sides. See, he advocated an anti-French policy, which would be seen as a Whig policy. But he was also very firmly opposed to any belief in the Popish plot. He argued again and again that there was not sufficient evidence to say that it had actually happened. That was very much a Tory policy. And for my money... Well, Danby was not a good politician or a good person, but on both those counts, he was correct. However, he made a lot of enemies for his anti-French policies, including the pro-French MPs in the Tory party and the French ambassador, as well as King Louis XIV himself. That coalition worked together to bring Danby down. They were funded by the king, funneled through the French ambassador, and they used lies and the fervor over the popish plot to their advantage. They brought letters forward in which the Earl of Danby appears to have made foreign policy decisions without the king's permission, which is extremely illegal. Of course, the king did approve of those orders. The letters that they brought out and read on the floor of Parliament had his own initials in his own handwriting on them, but these French agents just forgot to mention that part of the letter. The Whigs, who were anti-French, did the bidding of the pro-French MPs. They didn't like Danby because Danby had denied the Popish plot time and time again, and they used that argument as a catalyst to bring down the Popish plot to center the Earl of Danby. I know that some of this is getting hard to follow, but the point here is that the Earl of Danby was impeached and sent to the Tower of London, The Whigs, who were working very hard to keep French Catholic influence out of their country, sent a man who was their ally in that to the Tower. They did the French a favor here, in support of their own fervor over the Popish plot, which may have been created by the Whigs themselves. The king was unhappy with the actions of the Cavalier Parliament and decided that they had sat for long enough. He dissolved the body and called for new elections for a new Parliament. The body that was formed a few months later was, contrary to the hopes of the king, 
far more anti-French, far more anti-Catholic, and far more anti-James than the Cavalier Parliament had been. It wasn't the best political move to dissolve a parliament and call for new elections when the tide was already not in your favor. Regardless, Charles accepted the parliament and addressed them on their opening session. He said, quote, I have done many great things already, the exclusion of the popish lords from their seats in parliament, the execution of several men. I have disbanded as much of the army as I could, and above all, I have commanded my brother to absent himself from me, because I would not leave malicious men room to say I had not removed all causes which could be pretended to influence me toward popish councils. I have not been wanting in executing all the present laws against papists, and I am ready to join in the making of such farther laws as may be necessary for securing the kingdom against popery. End quote. And then King Charles went on to talk about a lot of things that were much more near and dear to my heart, in particular demanding money from this parliament so he could build a bigger and better navy, which he did, because above all, King Charles was a practical man. But that opening to that speech sounds very much like a condemnation of popery, and even of his brother James. It was constructed to gain support from the new parliament. However, while Parliament had not been in session, Charles had rescinded the Articles of the Test Act that would bar James from the throne. He had defanged the Test Act in favor of his openly Catholic brother. The new Parliament's very first action was a bill that would have far-reaching effects. It was called the Exclusion Bill. The Exclusion Bill was essentially a reinvigorated, stronger, and even more draconian version of the Test Act. It outright excluded any and all Catholics from holding any office in England. Naturally, Shaftesbury was behind it, but it had a lot of support on the floor. But those supporters, well, they were divided among themselves. They were divided over who would succeed King Charles. Now, Looking back, we can see that they were definitely putting the cart before the horse here. The bill hadn't even passed yet. But that divide, and the arguments over it, kept them from gaining the necessary support in either House of Parliament. The bill failed. And it shouldn't have. Nearly all of the MPs in this new Parliament wanted to pass that bill. But they couldn't agree on what would come after. This Parliament would go on to be called the Habeas Corpus Parliament, they would, later on, pass a bill enforcing a habeas corpus in England, hailing back to the Magna Carta. However, that bill had no teeth either. Rather, the initial bill was strong, but the House of Lords pulled the teeth that it would have had. After doing so, they sent it back to the House of Commons. Unfortunately, the Commons had just received word that they were going to be dissolved again, and if they didn't pass this toothless version, they would get nothing. And that's a shame. I believe in habeas corpus, as I think most people in the modern world do, and we will see the failing of the Habeas Corpus Act in the extrajudicial killings that were allowed in both Scotland and Jamaica in the next few years. The failure of this bill was a last major defeat for Shaftesbury and the entire Whig opposition. On the moment that this king dissolved the Parliament, he invited James back to England as well. The opposition the legal, above-ground opposition to the king and James, had failed. 
Several lords and MPs fled England entirely, including Shaftesbury. They sailed for the Netherlands, where the Prince of Orange and his wife Mary would keep them safe. And just in case you're not super up on this era of history, in case those names don't mean anything to you, don't worry, they're not important at all. You don't need to spare another thought for them. They're not going to play any role in the story to come. You can trust me. But the forces that remained in England, the opposition forces that most militantly opposed the king and the heir presumptive, well, they began to coalesce, not in the halls of Parliament, but behind the scenes. Lords and MPs and lesser officials began to convene secret meetings. Forbidden pamphlets circulated among them. They were discreetly handed to potential allies, and quiet conversations took place in alleyways in the dark corners of coffee shops. And next time we're going to be talking a lot more about those pamphlets and coffee shops, but last time we talked about several failed Scottish rebellions. Well now, those Scottish rebels now learned that they had allies in England. They had allies that were powerful enough that Scottish lords could even begin to openly throw their support behind the rebels. And all of these rebels working together, both English and Scottish, well, they had a two-part plan. Or perhaps they had two separate plans, it's hard to say. I know all of this sounds very cloak and dagger, and, you know, it was, where we have trouble knowing exactly what was true and what was propaganda. But the first of those plots, or the first part of that plot, that was called the Rye House Plot. The plan was simple. They were going to assassinate King Charles II and his heir, James, on their way from a horse race. They were going to use as their base a manor called the Rye House. This plan had powerful and famed backers, but the best of these, the smartest of these, were wise enough to stay just far enough away from the plot that should it fail, they could always claim ignorance and innocence. You know, they just happened to be leaving town for a week or so at just the same time that the plotters needed a place to stay. They just inconveniently, of course, happened to leave behind food and money and supplies that would be necessary in the Rye House plot. This is clever. If the plot succeeds, yay, I helped. If the plot fails, well, I had nothing to do with it. But all of that means that there were secretaries and butlers and gardeners and wives that knew something was afoot. I mean, even if they didn't know what was going on here... Some of them surely poked their noses in. Who doesn't want to know what their boss or their husband's deep, dark secrets are? And some of those found what they were looking for. And some of those that found the information were horrified. Now, none of them found solid evidence, but reports did start trickling into the halls of power that former allies of Shaftesbury and proponents of exclusion were planning something. Of course, as a wise man once said, when too many people know a secret, it ceases to be a secret and becomes information, and information is more valuable than the contents of a man's purse. Most of these reports claimed that there was a Monmouth cabal. More on that next time, but the others were right on the money. They claimed that there was a plot for assassination. And then, on 12 June 1683, one plotter decided that this entire plan was a fool's errand. He made a move. 
He earned a pardon when he contacted some of those close to the king and gave them names, he gave them dates, and he gave them a full rundown of the plan. He only implicated those that were planning assassination. Perhaps that's all he knew anything about, but he never mentioned any of those that were involved in the Monmouth Cabal, if that even existed. But when the king took action, his justice was swift and brutal. Within a couple of weeks, twelve men were executed, some by burning, some by hanging, some by beheading, and some by being drawn and quartered. More than thirty others were either jailed or exiled or else fled the country. Now some of those that fled ran to the Prince of Orange, who, remember, is not important, but we should note that Shaftesbury was not implicated in any of this. He was far from England at the time, and there were no ties to him. The king had foiled the Rye House plot. He should have been elated, but he was troubled. Nearly all of those that he had executed or exiled or arrested, they were small time. A few of them were nobles, but we're not talking anybody powerful here. The king knew that there were even more powerful and more influential members of this plot that had escaped justice. He knew that they had taken part in the plan. He knew their names, and he knew that they still plotted against him. But he didn't have any proof. You know, you might be allowed to execute rebels in Scotland in the field. You might be allowed to kill pirates without a trial. But you couldn't do that to magistrates and lords. If he chose to move against these men, he would be labeled a tyrant, and that would only add fuel to the fires of rebellion that were already burning. King Charles was a troubled man. But he didn't have terribly long to worry. He began to grow ill. And just over a year after the Rye House plot was supposed to have taken place, King Charles suffered a fit that rendered him weak and virtually immobile. A few days later, the king knew that the end was near, and he called his brother to his side. He lamented his own treatment of his wife, and in almost the same breath he asked James to look after his current favorite mistress, and he even spared a thought to, quote, not let poor Nellie starve, end quote. Then the king was formally received into the Catholic Church. He was given communion and the last rites, and he died. Now many in the court suspected poison, and considering the political climate at the time, that's not the worst instinct. But let's be honest here. King James was called the Merry Monarch for very good reason, a lifetime of drinking, probable drug use, and the pressures of rule would take the toll on a man. Not to mention the many, many extramarital affairs that the king enjoyed during a time when having many partners was the fashion in London high society, and there was no such thing as safe sex. Nell Gwynne did die shortly after the king of a new disease, a transplant from the new world called syphilis. However, that's probably not what killed the king. It was almost certainly kidney failure and complications from a life of drink. The king is dead. Long live the king. King James of England, Ireland, and Scotland. Next time we're going to look at the reign of King James, short though it was. We're going to look at his adversaries. We're going to look at the last land battle fought on English soil. And we're going to look at the new regime. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. 
everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a review or a rating wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has subscribed and smashed that like button on YouTube, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, without all of you I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at the Pirate Hist- After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, YouTube, or Facebook. As always, most importantly, Thank you for listening. Tonight